Hi, I'm Tammy Rodman. I'm Reynolds Chapman. And I'm Keith Daniel. Welcome to Who Is My Neighbor, a podcast about what it looks like to love your neighbor. Every city has a story, and our wonderful city of Durham, North Carolina has woven our stories together. This podcast is an invitation to join us as we journey through Durham's history of pain and hope and discover what God is speaking to us in this moment. Come with us as we listen to the voices of the Samaritans. In this first season, we are asking a question to respond to our present moment. Who is my neighbor amid a pandemic and a history of racial injustice? Delighted to have on the show with us, my good friend, our good friend and brother in Christ Lafayette Perry. When I woke up this morning and I began my day, I thought about, about friendship and Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. And certainly Lafayette fits that definition for me. Uh, comes to, he comes to mind for me in that scripture. And as we think about neighborly love in these times of adversity, times of challenge, I'm so grateful for him uh, and the opportunity for him to be on our show today. He's, he's had a, an amazing life and has uh, been with me through times of adversity. So thank you, Lafayette, for being on, on our podcast today. You're welcome. You know, I've been through a lot. Yep, yep. And so we're going to take some time just to kind of unpack a little bit what that journey has been like for us now over clo- um, closing on, on three decades or possibly more. I've kind of stopped counting at this point. Uh, <laughs> but for our, for our audience benefit, I'd like to say a little bit about Lafayette's background. And I think it'll it'll reveal um, why this show is important to us in recognizing our neighbors and our community. Lafayette was born in Lewisburg, North Carolina, in the great year of 1962, just a few more years before me. Um, he's a Durham High uh, alumnus or class of 1981, and he's pursued education at Durham Tech. And early on, he told me he had an interest in political science, which again, uh, as we go through our conversation today, it's going to be interesting to see Lafayette knows so much about local and national politics as well as religion. So I think that's something else that bonds us. But he had an interest in working in juvenile justice. Currently, uh, Lafayette is working on the front lines as a, as a food service provider uh, for a major restaurant. And he may say more about about that work he's doing now and how um, the pandemic has impacted his, his work uh, flow and uh, his, his work opportunities. He's also has worked in a local neighborhood convenience store um, here in Durham over a number of years, again, uh, as a way of um, um, being employed and uh, caring for his family and his extended family. He's had the um, challenge of being involved in in the justice system uh, through different experiences in his life. He's been on that side of it as well. I got to know Lafayette uh, through working in the nonprofit sector here in Durham as I started to uh, learn about the world of nonprofit and serving our community. And one of the organizations that was important to him was the Durham Economic Resource Center, the former Durham Economic Resource Center. And... um, also, we've had a chance to share time in working with the In Hunger Durham group, been involved with the Village Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. Unfortunately, again, that was a direct involvement for Lafayette in the, um, the violence that took his, his nephew, George Rashawn Perry, uh, to gun violence in 2008. Lafayette has also um, uh, experienced you know, the mental health services and, and community here in Durham. And in fact, when I had my short episode of, of, of depression. He was there for me and I was grateful for his firsthand um, support and experience through mental health crisis. And I could go on um, uh, in saying more about Lafayette, but you'll hear more about his journey as we open up these questions about how do we love our neighbors and who is our neighbor in the time of pandemic. So with that, you know, Lafayette, I guess I want to just ask you the first kind of just, you know, the question we tend to see people when we're in the community how are you doing right now? Uh, well, you know, I'm making it, you know. I remember one time uh, I was working at UNC and uh, somebody asked one of the girls, said, how you doing today? 
And she started telling them, and Supervisor sort of looked at him like, so when the other person walked away, she said, they don't want to know your life story. They just want to say, hey, you doing good or not. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And that used to sort of bother me. So how much do you tell a person how you doing? <laughs> but I'm doing good and, you know, sort of working this pandemic because it's a fake food service. And then with the housing, yeah. she has down what? Really about through two weeks before I move in, get to move in. Yeah. Everything shifts now. So I got to start all over again. And then during that time of shutting down, you know, worrying about my daughter, went looking for her, found her, found her, and brought her home. And that's about her every night. Hmm. So, but I, all in all, I'm doing good. Good, good. You know, I'm trying not to be too overwhelmed, but I'm doing good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know I, I started out talking about um, a little going back to your life story or some aspects of your life that I've been privy to, but can you say a little bit more about what it was like for you growing up um, and how you experienced your community and neighborhood kind of coming up uh, through your early years and maybe just touch on a few highs and lows for you as you began your journey here in Durham? Oh, I born in Lewisburg, North Carolina, 1962. One of the the most racist towns you will ever be in during that time. And uh, I remember to go into Roses where with the 510 Woolworth mm-hmm. and Belts was here. They had a side door. And uh, we had to go through the side door. So mm-hmm. you want to go into Woolworth, you go right. You want to go to Belts, you go left. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing with the movies. So a lot of, I grew up, but a lot of stores like that. And uh, it was strange because we would go to the post stop. I would go to the post stop with my grandma and there was a water fountain. And I would ask, could I get some water? My grandma would always take me to this other side. And I said, well, why can't I drink out this side? <laughs> and she says, no, no, it's, you know, this water. So even though a lot of the 1962 was the civil rights movement and all that. It's still sort of like I spent a lot of that deep slavery and racism and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, after seven o'clock, after got dog, we come be on the other side of town. We have to be on that side of town. And uh, so they called our side of town Black Town. And the other side was, so it was a, it was a challenge. I mean, the first day I went through Woolworth front door, I thought I was going to get killed. <laughs> I mean, I'm nine years old. I remember I'm nine years old. My sister looked at me like, they lady said, boy, you can't. I kept moving, and my sister was like, you can't do that. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. But I never asked why, you know, until you started getting older and you started seeing stuff. So, in 1972, when they, uh, it was 1972 when they started integrating the movies. And actually, the first movie was The Exodus. So when did you come to Durham? Uh, 1970, 1978. Mm-hmm. I came. Then at the end of the school year, I went back to Lewisburg for the summer. And when I came back, I said, you know what? I'm staying here for the summer. You know, more opportunity. Mm-hmm. So about 77, 78. Okay. Mm-hmm. Lafayette, um, you know, I've heard some of your story uh, before and you've shared some things, I think, in some conversations that we've had. Um, and so uh, you've been through quite a bit. You've seen some stuff. And so what I guess the question for me would be, with all that you've been through, all that you've experienced, what is one of the uh, greatest lessons that you've learned? Greatest lesson? Not to overthink things. Not to overthink. And that used to be my, actually that used to be my major problem, is overthinking. 
But one of the greatest lessons of all was that, you know, you have people in your corner. If you just let people know what's going on. You have people who there would help you, you know, and not just there to hear your story, but actually want to help. You know, you don't have to do it by yourself, and there's no shame in going through stuff. The shame is going through and not asking for help when it's there. Amy, people have been a big, he done went through, oh my God, you done went through some battle with me. <laughs> alcoholic, I mean, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I don't like that. I'm an alcoholic. Title, that's a label. But I had a serious drinking problem. I quit for many years, then stuff, you know, start piling up and start backing. Keith had went through a battle with me too. I don't care if you ever experienced anybody with alcoholic problems, but my dad was an alcoholic. So, but that's one of the greatest things I learned was, you know, don't overthink things. People are there to help you if you just ask. Lafayette, thank you for sharing about growing up in Lewisburg. I think for a lot of us in Durham, uh, it's helpful just to kind of see what the journey has been coming from one town to Durham. And you talked about just how steep the oppression was there and the racism in that town. Uh, what was it like coming to Durham? Uh, the, I mean, we know a lot about ways of segregation and racism in Durham, too. And I'm curious what that journey has been like for you coming to Durham? When I came to Durham, it was sort of strange because, you know, the first year I was in Durham, I stayed most around, you know, my central, North Carolina Central, because my brother was working on his master's degree. So it was pretty much home, school, and some people my sister and brother knew in Durham that was you know, sort of, uh, I don't even want to say middle class, you know, black. So I really didn't get to go a lot of place where I was restricted. My sister was a real good friend with a Durham police officer. So anytime I was somewhere that I wasn't supposed to be and he saw me, I would get put in the police car and taken home, you know, and people were like, why are you in the, why the police take you home and this and that? I said, well, he's sort of like a big brother. But one of the shocking things about when I came to Durham, especially we still talk about 1977, was that people are actually walking through the front door and these shops and to the mall and going on the front of the bus and sitting in the front, in the middle, wherever they want to sit it. Nobody said anything. I mean, walking down the street, downtown, nobody said anything more like, Hey boy, where you going? What you doing on this side of town? Do you know what time it is? And, you know, growing up in a small town like Lewisburg, everybody's tend to know everybody. And they especially sort of know special people, you know, like the sheriff, D-Man, knew my grandparents, you know, my great grandma. And, when my brother and them used to get in trouble, D-Man would take them straight to the house to her still, you know. So it was, there was some uh, good and there was some bad, but to come to Durham was like, ow. And you talk about walking across Duke campus? Oh no, man, it was, damn, that went to heaven. I'm on Duke campus and you all heard all this stuff about Duke. So it was a route and between you know, run around Central and uh, over when I would go over to Central, especially coming from Clapham, Durham Tech would be like, okay, don't do this. And then when we go over to Duke, my sister had to go and do some work on the computer. When the computer first came out, you remember when they had the punch card? <laughs> like, don't go there. Don't go there. And I'd be like, where can I go? Just that right there. So it was a really experience and you have to adjust, not to adjust to know where I work, you know. So, and people in Durham used to laugh at me, and especially some I went to school with and this and that, they said, no, you don't have to ask, just do it. Like, That's not the way I grew up, <laughs> you know. Hmm.
Wow. So even even through the seventy five, seventy six, it was still it remained like that in Lewisburg until you left. Ronald, let me tell you, we know we knew and still know every classman in Lewisburg. <laughs> I mean, it was two or three nights a week, depending on what was going on, that they would burn the cross up on the hill. And we would stand there and watch the cars go and say, that must have uh, Charlie's, that must have hers, that must have so's. Oh, there go the mail car. We knew them. And uh, one of the friends that really <laughs> stood out, and we, we talked about it once in a while, was that we had an old black baseball team. They were beating everybody. I mean, black, white, mixed, you, they beat them. And we had this old white baseball team come from out of town, and these guys were good, believe me, they were good. Both of them was undefeated. And it was so funny that in the center field, without anybody thinking, somebody found and said, what did in center field? And there was a cross in the center field. And they didn't have their Sheets and all that, on. but the guys were just standing around the cross, and it was like, okay, we knew who we we know you, but it it was funny. It was it was it was it was just a strange experience. But then nothing happened. I mean, we lost by one point, so I really were happy. <laughs> but we knew the we 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 knew the clansmen. We knew. Them. Yeah. It was just a. Well, Lewisburg, Franklin County, one of their biggest, biggest claim to fame is they found some paper from, uh, was it Ben Franklin? One of the Confederate. It was Ben Franklin or even one of the Confederates, but they they have that on the play. And it's, it was one of their biggest claim. They even still got the house that they slept in. Hmm. They just keep it. But uh, now it's just a whole, whole different place. Racism still exists there. It's it's hard to, um, you know, every time we do this show, I always acknowledge that time to just uh, take in someone's story, right? Elements of it. So when Lafayette says, I've, I've seen cross burnings, right? And I haven't, I was born in 68, but to have a friend, when we talk about, you know, we have a best friend or we have someone we know who has, you know, directly experienced something, it does, it should evoke another layer of like compassion or desire to see change, right? But when, when you said that, you know, it was not uncommon to, to know, you know, the clan's person or, the, or to see the visible signs and so today, when we look at our neighbors who are who are protesting now, right, uh, uh, and outrage, and you know, seeking to tear down these symbols, and people ask the question, you know, what difference does it make? We're like, well, clearly it makes a difference because these are si- these are signs and symbols of our subjugation or oppression and violence. And um, but they also history. They also they also a lesson. You know, one of the you know. During all this time, and I'm, I'm going on 60. You know, we, we really, and then all the years I really never heard anybody ask the question is, what really make you hate someone of a different color? You know, it, it got to be more than just that color. Mm-hmm. That's a teaching. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's some, somebody's talk. Mm-hmm. I hate you because you're white. Why? Mm-hmm. I mean, there got to be something else more deeper. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, there's just a whole, you know, I, I, I love to study history. And one of the, I don't mind Adolf Hitler never had, you know, but one of the things Adolf Hitler done was he used German defeat to actually win their heart. Mm-hmm. We we got our butt kicked. We can't live with that. You know, that, that's embarrassed. So when he started talking about bringing their glory back, he was talking their language. Hmm. 
they were focused on being, you know, what they were before, and just they weren't looking at the price that was going to come with that glow of being a superpower again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how it is now, you know, you 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 know, with these symbols and everything that's going on, we know why we fighting for it. We know the meaning behind it. Those that fight to keep it, look at it as hurt. That's not hurt. I mean, to you it might be, mm-hmm. but you got to look for what it is. Mm-hmm. They're glorifying racism. They're glorifying a system of mm-hmm. oppressing people. Is We're going to show you we are supreme one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at any country outside the United States or any else, what is one of the first thing they do when they talk to government? They pull down the symbol. I mean, they couldn't wait to blow the swat stickers off the Nazi headquarters. I mean, they filmed that mm-hmm. when they brought down Saddam Hussein. What did people do? They pulled down their statue in the uh, what is it, sword or mm-hmm. can't think of the name of it, but mm-hmm. and uh, the only one they probably haven't bought down it was Lenin, and I think they finally took him out and put him somewhere safe after 50 years, but mm-hmm. that, that's one of the things that had to happen. You, you turn down that simple because as long as that simple stand, that will give people hope. Yeah. You know, Robert E. Lee's statue was a rallying cause for white supremacy, and it still is because they look at it. But once you top it, that's where the defeat come from. Mm-hmm. That's to me. Yeah. Well, I, I'll um, acknowledge once again what it's what it's been like to uh, experience life with Lafayette and a lot of different conversations um, from politics to religion to, um, you know, to the local scene. Uh, I also have to acknowledge and just reminisce that he's helped me move three times, at least two or three times. You know, that's a good friend when they help. Nobody likes to get that call. Hey, can you help me move this weekend? But I want to shift the uh, lens a little bit and maybe go a little bit more personal with Lafayette because um, he recently, I was able to participate in the blessing of his of his habitat home before COVID. Oh, and we had expected him to be in his home by now, but uh, the pandemic and some of the other systemic effects have limited that. And we'll I guess refrain from placing too much blame, but I we, I did want to acknowledge and lament with him that he should have been in his house long before now. It's a beautiful habitat home, by the way. Um, but maybe Lafayette, if you can say, talk a little bit more about the pandemic and its effects, effects on like your managing your employment situation now. And, and again, um, if there's any more updates on when we can have that first house party that we've been looking to plan. You know that, when uh, when Lakeisha called me and said, uh, "We working on your closing. This is what I need. X Y Z. Bring two thousand dollars." So I knew how we we're going to pay. I had been saving and still saving. So I called my sister. I said, "This is what we need. So this is what I'm going to do." And I think it's going to take ten days. And this, she said, "No. When you go down there, just call me. You know all that." So. Uh, I go down and we down over a couple of hours and signing papers about this big, you know, I told why I asked because I get so security for writing cramp, you know, joking mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. No way. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, she was like, okay, two thousand dollars. So I'm like, all right, you know, this, you know, this the part everybody said is signing. Mm-hmm. Gave her the money and all that, the check. And uh said, so only thing we gotta do, the lawyer get clear the deed and get the keys and we done. But remember 14 days prior to that, the Durham County computer was hacked. Mm. The virus. 14 days prior to that. So and I I don't know if he remember that, but I'm like, the computer's working now? And she was like, that's it because you know they had a virus uh, tag from Russia, I was named they think it was Russia, 
But uh, so he haven't been able to pick up his name. Well, that same day, I get home. I thought I gave her the money and signed all the paper. And, you know, I want to go home and suck my hand from writing so much. <laughs> she calls her. Oh, where the office, the lawyer office closed because of the pandemic. I think he was one of the first one to close. He's not taking it in person. That's all right. That been how many months now? Three months. Hmm. Three months. So, uh, and where the frustrating party, not just the waiting, the frustrating party is, they really expect where they said they're going to the bank, whoever. Really expect you to continue doing what you're doing, even during the pandemic, even what was the uh, lockdown and restriction and job closing. They still want you to maintain your same income, your same hour, your same this and that. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, how can you do it? I work in a restaurant. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I work in a restaurant. Uh, regardless, you know, everything was closed. Especially with retail, you know, some open some. And uh as a way how I supposed to do that. You know. So Ruby Tuesday was open, restaurant open, you know, drive pick up and curbside and four hours a day. I'm like, okay. We gonna make this work. Cause I still gotta pay rent. Even though they say you don't have to pay rent, you know, Duke and all this stuff. And I said, oh no, nobody going to call me four months from now and say I owe them all this money. Mm-hmm. And then Habitat call and say, we ready for you to move in. So that's where you come in at. <laughs> all the listeners you all told me about priority mm-hmm. kicked in after, what, 30 years? <laughs> and you know, keep always being so. Then about priority, you know where your finance going, knowing you don't keep you're not keeping. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm only making so much money. Then I had a part-time job at the store. Mm-hmm. And when we get into that, that that's a whole nother excited thing. So uh I said, okay, how are we gonna make this work? Rent 650, then I remember I got three people stamped. Well, at the time my daughter was in stand. I had to go look for her call worry about her being so so we I made a work, paid rent every month, mm-hmm. paid due power, my fact due power. Now instead of Darn sent me a check for $73 out of a page. I said, no, that's credit. I sent it back. I said, that's credit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it been working. And then my mm-hmm. landlord finally asked me last week, of all the tenants I have, how are you able to pay your rent every month? That's how it works. So, yeah, you don't work like you used. So, at this time, right now, this pandemic in the house, as I told you, because they want me to keep the same in the hours I had before, I had to drive from Melbourne to Raleigh five days a week mm-hmm. just to make 35 hours to keep them happy. So, he's having to work, just to be clear, he's having to work at two different Ruby Tuesday locations because he can't get the same number of hours at one location. So it requires you to go to another location. one location and then travel to another location to pick up additional hours. Right, because they only give you 30 hours at the right. employee 30 hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even when I go to the other location, well, Raleigh is what they call my home base. Mm-hmm. So if I make 30 hours in Raleigh, I can only make 10 in Melbourne. Right. But I got to go through all of that just to set up my habitat. Right. And still work at the store. Mm-hmm. So, mm. and then at the same time, you know, like I said, my daughter had good days, she had bad days. So, that's a fight in itself. So, Lafayette is caring for his, his daughter's well being, uh, managing multiple employment. Uh, options under the uh, hope and the, the, the um, requirement, particularly with the requirement to be able to move into his habitat home and meet those qualifications. Um, 
the pandemic had wrecked it. But at the same time, it, uh, it showed me that I, I can do it at home. Learning it. I'm really, you know, focused on doing what I need to do and show what's important, you know. Yeah. As I mentioned, I work at the neighborhood store. And uh, back in the beginning, when everything was really hitting, nobody knew what was going on, what, what's going on, why is this, why? And I'm working at the store, and we, I don't know if you ever seen my picture on Facebook. We work with masks, we work with shields, we have gloves. Right. We don't know what's going on. Because, you know, we we working at the store where not just the, you know, the people in the neighborhood go, they still going out to work, some of them going out to panhandle, and you know, they still going all over the place. And they reach and they leave across the county and say, Oh, let me get XYZ, and you'd be like, You're too close. They didn't you know, and they still don't understand. They understand social justice. They just don't understand what's going on, and, mm-hmm. and they get all kinds of crazy information. Black people can't get the coronavirus because I generic. Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, we're not going to test out that theory today. Just back up. Mm-hmm. Just back up." Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's uh, trying to get them information. Just what's going on. Just why everything is closed now. That's why the bus not running, you know. That's why they want you to stay sick. And it's hard to talk to people like that when they have others telling them that they sort of look up to. No, this stuff is just government. This is a whole, this is to kill black people. No, black people can't get it. This is just something. By the time you fight through the misinformation, you sort of ready to sit down and say, you know what, I'm gonna just protect me. This is my little bubble, stay six feet away. Mm -hmm. We ain't gonna fight about it. Mm -hmm. But you have to continue to try to, you know. So one of the girls in the neighborhood, grandma, at the nurse home, I mean, got the coronavirus and she passed away. was going out visiting, she passed away, the other lady. For her to finally take it, that this is real. Yeah. And it's too bad that that had to happen. And, and that was what, like three weeks ago. So now, instead of seeing our kids running around without masks and mm-hmm. thinking it's a big holiday, they wrapped up just like, okay, you don't have to put the bubble on them, you know, mm-hmm. make sure they are hand and is you know clean and their mass and social distance, but it's had to get to that point for people in that community to kind of realize that it's not a hoax. Yeah, you know. Yeah, before uh, maybe you know, uh, uh, Reynolds, you might might want to want to follow this, but I I do want to take a moment to um to pause and acknowledge the uh, late Dr. Dorcas Bradley. Uh, she passed this past week or week before last, and I went to her um, graveside service this past Wednesday of last week, and she uh, succumbed to the coronavirus. Uh, she was a neighbor of ours in the West End and a West End matriarch and community change agent and leader And for our listening audience, again, as Lafayette has said, uh, this is a serious time of adversity. And we all need to take into account that it's not just about our own self-interest. And it is about um, being a good neighbor by practicing what the public health experts have said we should do, masking up when we're in public, um, in close and in spaces, protecting ourselves and our, our and our neighbors. And that is certainly, I'm glad you pointed that out. And again, I acknowledge that Lafayette, again, being in the community and often in communities that are more vulnerable because of the uh, systemic uh, structures that uh, have forced us into uh, areas of, of um, limited resources and support. Um, but you continue to remain resilient. I appreciate you putting, putting um, adding, adding the emphasis around, around, us being uh, careful to protect our loved ones and not just our, on our own interests. That sounds like neighborly love to me. 
I'm I'm really struck by how important community has been in your life from the time when your family in Lewisburg was trying to protect you and from all your time in Durham, how you've found community in and support from different people, uh, different working situations, your coworkers, your family. Uh, could you share more about that, just the importance of community in uh, in your life? You know, is when I was growing up, the, everybody in the community either were related or worked together. We all went to church together, went to school. But they were related or was friend for over 20, 30, 40 years. And you couldn't do anything at one end of the street and think your parents did not find out at the other end. And uh, I remember my, as we were growing up, my mom and dad used to say, don't let Miss Smith say something to you because you, if she do, you're going to get it when you get home. Now, Miss Smith stayed on the other street. <laughs> so with me, she better not say, stop cursing, stop doing X, Y, Z. And whenever you've done something, it, it beat you home. Believe me, it beat you home. But, you know, it, it was one of those, I don't know, y'all not my age, but I mean, we didn't have to knock on people's door. You didn't. If the door was unlocked, you say, coming in. Mm. Coming in. Mm. And that's what you do. Call everybody with, like, family. If the door was locked, that means you don't really, don't even knock on the door. <laughs> and even that's even the string door. Mm. You go, push, okay, string door locked, don't even bother. Go play. Mm. But the string door open, coming in. I'm getting some water. Do you have any Kool-Aid? And they be waiting in the back room. Mm. And uh, so that was the way we done in the community. And another thing was sports. The bottom of the hill had a team, the top of the hill had a team. So the bottom of the hill played the top. And then, you know, we, I don't know if it's a culture thing, but you know, we always say, we bottom, you top, you cross town, you cross street. When Run Spring Road had a team, Run Spring Street had a team, we would play each other. <laughs> and, and you know, that's still back in the 60s and 70s. And we did play organized sports, but you know, Little League Baseball and all that. And high school never still races, but for us neighborhood go, we just stayed in our neighborhood. And just, you know, then we still, and even think about it, we still have pause, even in the black community where, where you don't go there, you don't play with them. You know, they, they're not like us. You'd be like, they black, we, we, we black. No, they, 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 they not like us. You, you play with them. But community how always been important because it was, when something happened, the community always came together. And growing up, and we talk about this a whole lot. When I, it was, and it, too bad someone had to pass away for us to get together because we always, you know. There was some things in, small town that you don't hear about that is seen like that one of the things that really struck me in Durham, a 14-year-old girl having a baby. Say what? And uh, that's when that baby got missing out of the water. They said, the girl 14. I'm like, 14-year-old having a baby. Man, our parents would have killed us. Hmm. Back home, you didn't hear about that. Hmm. You didn't hear about people shacking and having affairs and this and that. As we got older then, we kind of found out how they slept, they slept at night, you didn't know. And then you were like, smile. Um, just three weeks ago, someone told me that uh, someone had passed away in Lewisburg. I said, well, that's so-and-so brother, right? And they said, no, that was her son. I said, no, I grew up with this, this, this girl didn't have no baby. They said, well, remember when she went and we had to go down there and roll a remember. Yeah, I remember she was left for the summer to go. 
And then by the end of the year, they had a new baby in the house. Mm-hmm. That was her baby. Mm-hmm. They were raised up as brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So as you got older, you found out stuff like that. But in the community, stuff was hidden. Mm-hmm. It, it was just hidden. And one of the great, and I think I still have part of this, you know, teaching, you never, ever, ever, regardless of what kind of condition that man was in, you never embarrass him in front of his family. You you know, and there was some of my grandparents, my dad and them, always taught us, you never put him down in front of his kids or wife. Maybe he had a drinking problem, maybe he had some kind of problem, but you never said they would always talk to him to the side. <clears throat> and uh, they would help, but they always done that in private. They didn't do it in the open because at the end of the day, they say they're still a man, you know, they're still a man. So, and that was one, that one of the some some stuff, you know, I grew up with. Me and seeing on women was like, keep going, that's none of your business. I mean, it was like, so. Community was really important. And I have a follow-up question to that too. How, when you, with this pandemic going on and everything in the community that you've built here in Durham, how has that community been important for you, the community here in Durham? Oh, I've been, you know, it's like Merle's call, different, you know, and, and that's the thing go, you know, that question, but even when you say, who is my neighbor? And the people staying next door and across the street, you know, they ask and they, you know, we talk. But more you, Merlis, people that I know across Durham and from the different, uh, Cameron, Ernest, they would call and say, how you doing? How everything going? And get texts, you doing okay? You need anything? And these are people like four or five miles away. And uh, so the people that actually in my neighborhood, when it first started, and uh, I started noticing a lot of them, they have masks and stuff. So I went out and bought some masks, and I went next and gave them, gave them. And I said, whether you wear it or not, unless you have it. Whether you believe it or not, you have it. So I started at one end, uh, and walked our way down Cabin Street. And I said, that's my neighborhood. <laughs> so coming back up to here, I said, Hold on, then I have the expanders over here. I said, Oh, yeah, that's my buddy. So I gave him masks and all that and uh, individual rap. And uh, they were real appreciated. I said, These are my neighbors. Then I end up on the other block, the other street. And I'm like, Hold on, I'm doing a lot of walking. <laughs> let me just give them somebody, let them pass it out. But we've been talking, I've been keeping them up to date. And, even go to FedEx and I print out stuff and I put it in the neighborhood and set it on the cars or, you know, put it on the board. Mm-hmm. At the cleaner, at the laundromat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just not, the neighbor for us to be there, we all got to work together. We all got to work together. And you know, that every time we talk about this pandemic, Two questions always come to mind is how did this become a Second Amendment right? And how did this become a freedom of expression right? I mean, uh, 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 you know, I just don't understand that. Mm-hmm. This is a virus. They have nothing to do with the Second Amendment. <laughs> so when you got all these people talking about, you know, you're taking out gun rights and open back up and this and that, yeah, you have a right to not to wear a mask. You have a right to wear a mask. So, where do your rights come to put me in jeopardy or put somebody else in jeopardy? But uh, I've been, you know, community, even in the, the store, the neighborhood where I work in, and I look at them and I listen, and it's hard to, really hard to fight for community call. On one thing, they'll stand together. And on another thing, they separate. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I had worked over there before, and so I know what kind of community. 
they'll stand with stuff they agree with, even though they don't see the bigger picture behind it as we will see it. And then they divide it on stuff that they really need to know, mm-hmm. you know, that they can benefit from and all that. I was talking to the lady about when they closed down the school about, you know, they were giving out laptops. Well, one of the guys said, well, the only thing they want to do is track their personal information. She goes, well, no, I'm not getting it then. Mm-hmm. What do you have to hide? Your kids need an education. All the kids are getting laptops. Yeah, but they're tracking your information. You know, who told you that? Mm-hmm. Your kids don't be using a laptop, not you. So you have to, supposed to be. So, uh, and you have to fight that, that good information against the bad information. And a lot of time they'll listen more to the bad information than the good. Yeah. And it's, you know, working in community, you know how hard that fight is sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophia, I'd like to ask a question. You know, you do so much and you've seen so much experience a lot. How how do you how do you find your peace? How do you uh, take care of yourself and taking care of everybody else? Oh. You know, right before I had my heart attack, what, four years ago? Mm-hmm. That used to be a question I used to laugh at. I mean I rest when I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, you know that old, I get all the sleep I want, but right now I got to move. But after I had my heart attack and I was laying in the hospital, it dawned on me, Ruby, you ain't close. They still open. Hold on. So it, it was like, guys, of what? They going to open. The world going to move around. You're not going to get kicked out your house because you miss one day or X, Y, Z. So right out there this morning, I just sort of, I try to get to the point where nothing builds up. You know, if it do, I call somebody. But one of the things that I really started doing, especially my daughter got sick, well, this going on two years now, because my granddaughter in college, it's just going in, sat by myself and just thinking about nothing. Sometimes it's hard with so much going on, but you had to clear your head and, as you always said, prioritize what's important. You know, what can I do and what I can't do? I can't worry, you know, what I can't do, I can't worry too much about it. I have to work on what I can do. So maybe what I can't do, I find a way to do it or get it done. And I try not to stress too much over the little stuff. You know, the day, I, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, I worked at 54 in Durham, Ruby Tuesday. The day Habitat called and birth for my employment, Ruby Tuesday closed that exact day. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, he no longer work here. You closed, you didn't close the restaurant at 11 o'clock. They closed at 9 o'clock. I'm standing there working. You know, it, it was, uh, you know, is you have to find, they say every cloud have a silver lining. I kind of believe everything that happened in your life have a meaning. It's teaching you something, it's telling you something. And just have to look for it and then sometimes it just turn out to be nothing. Mm-hmm. So I just try to meditate and not take on too much problem. Is it? Well, I guess um, as we look to come to a close, I I'm compelled to acknowledge the passage once again from Proverbs 17 and 17 for our listeners. It says a friend loves at all times and a brother or sister is born for a time of adversity. And again, we know these are continuing to be adverse times. We're hearing that the numbers in the pandemic are going up. Uh, there's continued to be outrage at, at injustice. Um, 
And there it is, it is a challenge to, to look for, as Lafayette says, the, the proverbial silver lining. But I hope today in this conversation and the gift of hearing some of Lafayette's story, and, and again, it's only been some of it, and that's why I, I recognize a lifetime is, can go by fast, but it, also, it can also go very deep and very wide, depending on how much we're paying attention. So we want to invite our listeners to, as sometimes we say in church, and we didn't, we didn't get to talk about our church, you know, that's what we actually <laughs> met was in church. As they say sometimes in church, turn to your neighbor and ask your neighbor, uh, hey, yeah, neighbor, uh, how you doing? But I think, uh, again, we want to encourage our listeners that this question of who is our neighbor is a pertinent one. There is somebody in your community who is an inspiration. And at the same time, there is somebody in your, in your community who is in desperation. And so our prayer and our hope um, is that we will look up and pause long enough, even with the mask on, even with distancing, to, to try to draw close um, in some special way. Again, as my dad will say, we, you might not be able to see my smile behind the mask, but hopefully you can see in my eyes that I care, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's something that I have that I can, I think Lafayette, again, exemplifies for me a friend who, who even if he didn't have a lot to offer, he's going to try to offer something, something of positive, something of support, uh, so again, it's it's just been a gift to me this this whole series, and I want to thank my friend Tammy and and, and Reynolds uh, for leading the organization of Durham Cares, uh, but not just the organization for just leading your communities from the heart. Um, so I'm just encouraged today and thankful for Lafayette for taking the time with us. And um, Tammy, if you want to. Yeah, Lafayette, thank you for sharing. I know it's much more that was there, but thank you. Um, Good seeing you again. Yeah, yeah. it's been a while. It's been a while. And we just pray continued blessings over you. We're going to already thank God for that house. It's just, and all that needs to be worked out will be worked out. So we're trusting and standing with you, Lafayette. Thank you again. The Who Is My Neighbor podcast is a production of Durham Cares, a nonprofit that mobilizes Durham residents to love their neighbors. Learn more at www.durhamcares.org. Be blessed.